Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Today, we're starting a brand new book of the Bible. It's not a brand new book of the Bible. It's, it's been in the Bible all this time. I mean, for us, we've been in Romans for 14 weeks. I think, longer. I mean, we, we did 14, 13 or 14 messages on Romans, and there were some interruptions in there. Today, we start 1 Corinthians. Woohoo! Yeah, I'm not going to do a review, a full review. Somebody asked me, I'm like, are you going to do a review since it's a new book? No, because uh, we're still in the epistles. You know, sometimes the reviews would just show up because we hadn't done one in a long time, uh, but it determined whenever we got into kind of a new section of the Bible. So we did a review, obviously, when we got to the New Testament. We did a review, I think at the end of Acts, uh, maybe right before Acts, but we spent a lot of time in Acts, and then as we introduced the epistles, the epistles are the letters. This is the next section of the Bible, and it fills the rest of the New Testament uh, up until Revelation. And so, and uh, most of these letters are written by Paul. We call them the Pauline epistles. Romans, certainly written by Paul, and uh, uh, I'm going to... uh, like I said, I'm not going to do a review, but I do need to make some introductory comments about our approach to the remaining epistles. And then, of course, I want to make some introductory remarks about 1 Corinthians itself before we actually begin to study the text, which we will do today. I don't have a whole lot of introduction for this. But as you know, and as I just mentioned, we really took our time going through Romans. Well, we could have taken more time going through Romans, but that was a long time to spend on, on one letter. But I also told you almost every Sunday why we were doing that, because Romans more than any other epistle, really lays out in doctrinal form what Christianity is. It's 11 chapters of doctrine that explain and affirm the fallen nature of man and man's need for a savior, man's need for righteousness, and God's plan to meet that need for all men, Jews and Gentiles, in the person and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, And he also spends time, of course, telling us how to, um, how we're to respond to that plan in order to avail ourselves of the salvation that God offers through Jesus. And it's expressed most concisely in Romans chapter 10, where it says, If you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so uh, those 11 chapters are really kind of centered around, the, the, they find their center, I think, in that verse. And then... Uh, In the remaining few chapters of Romans, Paul begins to write about the outworking of that faith. And he offers a few specifics, but it's mostly addressed generally. And in the rest of the epistles, uh, he addresses specifics. He gets into more and more specific things, uh, not exclusively. There's doctrine in the other epistles, of course there is. Uh, But there are also some very personal and concrete applications of the doctrine that's been expressed in Romans and is expressed in the other letters. And 1 Corinthians is longer than any, epistle, any other epistle, including Romans. So he, we really do get to see some details. It is packed with a lot of stuff, and the subjects are wide-ranging. He talks about unity and disunity. He talks in the kind of detail that sometimes will make you squirm about sexual sin talks about uh, marriage relationships. He talks about the gifts of the Spirit, and uh, among other things. It's, it's, our, it's probably, in fact, and we'll, we won't get there for a couple of weeks, it's probably the single best uh, 
letter we have when it comes to explaining the gifts of the Spirit. Uh, 90% of the questions people have about the gifts of the Spirit, what some people call the sign gifts, uh, are answered in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. And of course, we've done a series on those. Uh, on, uh, I know we did a series on Wednesday nights. We did, we did a series on, and on Sunday mornings about the gifts. So we are not probably going to spend uh, several weeks on those chapters, but we'll probably spend a week or two just in that section talking about the gifts. But we are, we are a little ways from there. A little, uh, little bit more background on 1 Corinthians. You remember, I'm sure, from the book of Acts that Paul spent about a year and a half in Corinth starting this church. He picked leaders, he trained them, he preached, he ministered there for a year and a half, and in fact, at his own expense. Paul will refer to the fact that, uh, and, and Paul's very careful, as you will see, to say certain things to the Corinthians and then kind of have to say, I'm not saying this to shame you, but I'm thinking, man, if you wrote that to me, I would be ashamed. And one of the things he says was, you know, I did there. I, th- I sat there and poured my heart into you for a year and a half. And I also had to work while I did it. And he says, and I shouldn't have had to. He said, now, don't get me wrong. I'm glad I did it because I love you and I want to see you grow. But frankly, if somebody else comes to come alongside you and minister to you, you need to pay him. And I love that that's in there because I'm a pastor who gets paid to work. And so it's very self-justifying. But he makes these points, and, but he comes down pretty hard on the Corinthians. He established this church, and, the, and Corinth was in southern Greece, not too far from Athens. He was, we know, since he was there for quite some time, he was very familiar with them. And he stayed in touch with them. Now, staying in touch, you've got to keep in mind, this was 2,000 years ago. They didn't cell phones. They didn't have uh, you know, uh, a sophisticated postal service, but that's how they communicated was, you know, hand-carried letters. And Paul would write these letters and he would hear things. He would run into people who had traveled from Corinth and happened to be uh, where he was and they would give him reports and he would hear these things. And because he was familiar with the Corinthian people, because they were the church he started, he was concerned. And so if he heard of problems, he would write them letters. He would answer their questions and we would see these things referred to in his letters. And in fact, it's by reading what we call First and Second Corinthians that we, we discover that he wrote at least four letters to the church in Corinth. Uh, the two that survive, or I prefer to say the two that God has superintended the preservation of to be included in our Bible that we call First and Second Corinthians are actually probably uh, Second and Fourth Corinthians. So we have the second letter and the fourth, uh, fourth letter to the church in Corinth that Paul wrote. And I believe it's simply because whatever was in those other letters, while I'm sure it was good, was not something that God determined we needed to have as part of our scripture. Uh, but First and Second Corinthians, as we have them, is, are. So he stayed in touch. He wrote these letters. And right off the bat, almost right off the bat, we discover that this letter... First Corinthians is written to a church that is spiritually immature. Probably the most carnal and immature church, church that Paul wrote to. So we see the church in Corinth. It was thriving. It was big. It was charismatic. Certainly they were practicing the gifts, but Paul considered them babies and was urging them many times to grow up, to stop acting like children, uh, and to be mature in the faith. And you contrast that with the church in Ephesus, which, as we'll see in a number of weeks when we finally get there, was probably the most spiritually mature church of his day. 
Uh, and you'll see that in the, in the way he writes it. And one example of that, and it's, it's, it's a small thing in the grand scheme of things, but I like the fact that when he writes to the Ephesians, he tells them to be imitators of Christ. To the Corinthians, he says, imitate me as I imitate God. In other words, and, and I, and I like... This, the, what I get out of that is he considers the Ephesians spiritually mature enough to simply follow Christ from the scriptures and from their own personal experience with the Holy Spirit. The Corinthians are so immature that they need, hey, look, you guys aren't even mature enough to know what Christ-like behavior is on your own, so I'm going to model it for you, and you just imitate me until you, you know, kind of like training wheels or walking along with somebody as they're riding their bike. We're just gonna, I'm going to give you me to imitate until I bring you up to this level. And it can kind of sound uh, maybe a little cocky. Uh, on the other hand, it kind of challenges me as a believer who's been a believer for decades now. Am I confident enough to say to somebody else, hey, if you want to know what Christian behavior looks like, if you want to know what this walk is supposed to look like, just look at me. Are you? Are you in that place? Are you confident? Are you, are you confident enough? To, and should we be? I think we should be. We should, we should be striving and we should be uh, confident in the Holy Spirit's work in us enough at some point in our lives, to say, follow me as I follow Christ. And Paul certainly says this. So let's just open up. We are not going to do, certainly not my intention to do, to read every single verse in this book as, we, as I preach through it, like we pretty much did with Romans. But we'll read a lot of it, and I do want to, uh, and I encourage you to go home and read it, kind of do your homework. So when I make references to particular scriptures in First and Second Corinthians, uh, you'll know they'll be familiar to you. And... Uh, let, but do let's open with the first several verses, just so we get some context. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, Paul, and, this, and remember, this is the structure of the letters. Instead of saying, dear Corinthians, uh, and then writing the letter and then signing off saying, love Paul, he starts off, they start off with Paul. They identify themselves uh, as the author in the beginning of the letter. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. You remember that Sosthenes was uh, uh, the ruler of the synagogue in Corinth. This, he shows up in the book of Acts, as a lot of the people that are referenced in here do. And you can find him in Acts chapter 18. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, and with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's the greeting. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by, Jesus, by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him, in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly awaiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also... Confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And he inserts the name of Jesus Christ a lot in this, in this opening section. And those are some pretty kind words. Those are encouraging words. And it's important in light of what he's going to say next He's telling them that they've been the recipients of all these gifts. God has withheld nothing from them, that they have been called. They've been enriched in everything, all utterance, all knowledge. And they need to understand this because the criticism that follows, they're not going to be able to say, well, you didn't share this with us, Paul. Uh, God has not blessed us with this, Paul. And Paul's saying, yeah, yeah, 
I know. I was there for a year and a half. I was the guy that God used to enrich you with all this utterance and knowledge and the gifts and everything else. Uh, the criticism that's going to come is nobody's fault but your own because you've chosen not to walk in it. All right? So the first thing, it's a pretty, uh, we think, in the, again, in the grand scheme of things, maybe not a, a big thing, certainly not as uh, scandalous as what he's going to address later, but um, there's an argument going on. There's a division. Here's what he talks about in verse 10, still in chapter 1. Now, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now, Chloe uh, or somebody from Chloe's household has been sent to tell Paul, hey, we got some problems in Corinth and here's what they are. Verse 12, now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, that's Peter, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you, except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanas. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. So the first thing he's running into, the first problem he's addressing is, you've got these factions, and they are not factions over deep points of doctrine. You're trying to elevate yourself in the eyes of the other believers in Corinth. You're having a conversation. Oh, you're a believer too? When were you baptized? Well, I was baptized uh, two years ago. Who baptized you? Well, Apollos baptized me. Oh, yeah? Peter baptized me. Oh, yeah? Paul baptized me. And Paul's like, are you kidding me? And he say, it was out of his way to say, you know, looking back, I only baptized, personally, I only baptized a handful of you. And he names who they were. He says, now I'm, now I'm glad I didn't. Because Paul knows he's, he's a super apostle. He's, he's a ranking guy. And he doesn't want anybody going out there hanging their salvation on him, Paul. But he's saying, neither does Apollos and neither does Peter. We are all simply agents of Christ. Christ is the one who baptized you. Christ is the one who died for you. Let's don't break up into these camps. First church of Peter, first church of Paul, first church of, of, of Apollos. This is not the way it's supposed to work. Of all the things that would create disunity, they're having a competition over who got baptized by the best apostle or the best preacher. Are we immune from that today? Not really. You know... I'm, I'm double ordained. I've got two ordination certificates hanging in my office. My first ordination, and an ordination is simply, uh, to, to, I guess to put it simply, it's, it's, a, uh, it's an official act that simply recognizes the call on somebody. If you are ordained, I, when I was ordained originally, my father laid hands on me in this room. I was ordained by Living Word Family Church. And uh, my dad, the pastor of this church, was simply recognizing in the presence of people who were more or less in agreement uh, that there was a call on my life. Did it, was there a particular gift imparted to me at that point? I don't know. I know the call was there and there's a gift there already. Uh, and the, the, the ordination was simply uh, kind of an official act. Didn't make me, oh wow, that's it. Now everybody has to call me Pastor Scott. That wasn't what it was about. It wasn't about the title. But, you know, from a legal standpoint, you know, 
you know, I don't think it matters much anymore, at least not in Illinois, but, you know, for funerals, for weddings, and things like that. But I was also, I know this is, is going to blow some of you away who didn't already know it, Brother Hagen, Brother Hagen, Dad Hagen, also laid hands on me at Ramah in front of thousands of people. So I hold papers for Raymond Ministerial Association International. And Brother Hagen, not Pastor Hagen, and not some underling, wasn't Doug Jones or Tony Cook, Brother Hagen laid hands on me. This is the kind of thing that Paul's talking about. All right? And believe me, it goes on. It still goes on. All right? So this isn't just history. And remember, Brother Hagen laid hands on me. Uh, no. So then he goes on in the next verses to talk about the innate power of the gospel as opposed to human wisdom. Human wisdom is something that the the Gentiles sought. Uh, The Greeks were all about wisdom and knowledge and solving problems. When we talk about the philosophers, the ancient philosophers, who were they? They were the Greek philosophers, right? And so the the Greek world, the Gentile world, world really prized human wisdom. And Paul's saying that is not the way to the power of God. All right? He's saying the foolishness of God is wiser than the, the, the wisest wisdom of man. And, and the weakest thing in God's kingdom is more powerful than the most powerful thing in the carnal world. Because the Jews were about power. It was the Jews, not the Gentiles, wherever Jesus went. It was the Jews that showed up and said, show us a sign. You want us to believe you? Show us a sign. And Paul's saying this is not, that there is something in the most powerful thing. And this is a guy who's going to go on here to say, I think we're going to read it this morning, that when he preached, he preached with power and signs and miracles and wonders. But he's saying the most powerful thing about the gospel is the gospel itself, the message itself. There is a, uh, well, let, me, let me read this. I don't think I have, yeah, let's read this. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, it says this, And I, brethren, when I, came to, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You should highlight that in your Bible. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom, wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So, now here's, a, here's Paul. Now again, did he, did he stutter? Did he have a squeaky voice? I don't know. Uh, but he's, when he talks about fear and trembling, I think what he's simply doing is recognizing the reverence that Paul himself holds for the word of God and the responsibility he has, when it, whoever he's teaching, whoever he's preaching to, to say it accurately, to say it clearly, right? This is something I pray still every, every single Sunday before I get in the pulpit. During praise and worship, I pray that, the anointed, that God would anoint me to speak his word clearly, accurately, boldly, and effectively. All right? All those things are important. And I think that that's the fear and trembling that Paul's talking about. He wasn't talking about being nervous in front of a room full of people. Paul was bold, right? And he also is not talking about, uh, again, I don't think he's talking about a speech impediment or anything like that. He's simply, but this is also Paul. We read his writings and we know he was eloquent. We know he was educated. He was great. He could uh, debate with the philosophers of his age. He's simply saying that's not where the power of my message came from. Where did it come from? Verse 2, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I had a conversation with a youth pastor years ago. Great, great guy. Now pastors a large church in, uh, I think, Cincinnati. 
but uh, he was telling, we were just kind of having a, just getting reacquainted. I'd known him since he was a kid, and he was telling me how uh, some of the stuff he had to deal with as the youth pastor of a much larger youth group, and he said he, he, uh, he had a, uh, the mother of one of the uh, girls in his youth group came up and said, why can't you fix my daughter? You know, she's been coming to your youth group for months, and she still, she still disrespects me. She's still, she's not interested. She doesn't even like to go to church and all this other stuff. You know, why don't you, there needs to be more uh, miracles in your service that, that will get her attention. What, what, what are you not giving her that she needs? And he, and he said, uh, he told her, he says, listen, he, he didn't tell me her name or anything. He says, I have offered her the crucified Lord Jesus Christ. And that is, there is nothing I can offer her that is more than that. And this is a kid who wasn't afraid to flow in the gifts of the Spirit. It wasn't that he was refusing that. He was saying that the problem was not that there weren't enough signs and wonders. The problem was she simply would not receive that message. The cross, the Jews, remember, they were. They were the ones who wanted to see the, the, the power. And it's, boy, this is one of my favorite things to get onto, especially when we're talking about healing. You know, Jesus healed everywhere he went, Right? And he didn't do it in secret. And he didn't do just one or two. We have specific uh, episodes recorded in the Gospels where he healed you know, certain men. Sometimes it names them. Sometimes it tells us exactly what was wrong with them. But always, always, it says wherever he went, he preached, he taught, and he healed the multitudes. He healed all that came to him. So it wasn't like this was a rare occasion. But when he refused to do it was when people, the Jews, the Pharisees, would come and say, show us a sign do a miracle for the sake of doing a miracle. They wanted to see this power. That's what they wanted in the Messiah. And we, we still kind of respond to that too. You know, the signs and wonders, which I believe are for today, and I believe they will follow the preaching of the gospel. But, number one, I don't think the primary place of the miracle is to get attention for people. I think the primary place of the miracle is to work a deliverance, to work a cure, to work a... Uh, transformation in somebody's life and their circumstances. But, but of course, that will get somebody's attention. But the power of, uh, of the message of the cross is more powerful than that. And yet, at the same time, for people with a mindset like the Jews, it's a stumbling block. And for people with the mindset of the ancient Greeks, it's a stumbling block because it's not uh, for the Greeks who were looking for wisdom, it doesn't sound wise enough. It doesn't sound clever enough. It's not, oh, come on, you're just telling me this guy just died. Where's the story? Where's the philosophy? And, and for the Jews, it's like, that's not power. Power would have been calling 10,000 angels and destroying those who are trying to crucify you. That's what we want our Messiah to do. So it really was a stumbling block for both camps. And it is today, too. The hardest thing about the salvation message, especially in a society like ours that prizes uh, uh, accomplishment and self-sufficiency is to recognize that the only way I can be saved is to simply accept as a gift the life that Christ offered and the fact that he can only offer it to me because he died the death I was supposed to die. It hurts my pride for God to say, if you want to be saved, there's nothing you can do. But this is it. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the center. That's the power of the gospel. Then he goes on to talk about the spiritual man versus the carnal man. And he stresses in light of what he's writing about that one of the marks of Christian maturity is unity. 
not, uh, not striving in a spirit of competition for the approval of man. Let's read a little bit of this here in chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. 1 Corinthians 3, 5. Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. And we've heard that before. So somebody waters, somebody plants, somebody waters. And we, we tend to look at the Billy Grahams, the people who are really good at that moment of harvest. And we wish we could do what they could do. But everybody is playing a part in this process. People have to hear the gospel a certain number of times before it clicks. You planted a seed, somebody else watered. Somebody else planted, you watered. Uh, and so the person who gets the credit or the glory sometimes is the person who actually leads them in that prayer. But all that glory should go to God, and all of our thanks should go to God if we were any part of that process. You understand? Going back to the offering. The money that you put into that plate, a good chunk of that is going out on the mission field. And let's just take one person. Let's take the Rackleys. They'll train some workers. Those workers will go out and preach the gospel. Those pastors in those churches where those VBSs take place will water that seed. And at some point, somebody somewhere is going to lead a child or a family in a prayer of salvation. All right? What did, what, what, where's that? Well, why, we didn't get anybody in Mexico saved. Yeah, we did. We were part of that process. Because if it weren't for that, some of those villages wouldn't be reached and the seed would never hit that soil. You understand? We are a, 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 an essential link in that chain. But God gets all the glory for every step of it. And look what happens as a result. Beginning in, uh, let's pick up here in verse 9. Still in chapter 3. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire." And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built of it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Now that's a little bit confusing, but here's what Paul's saying. Foundation's been laid. Foundation's Jesus Christ. And I'm building on that foundation, but I'm, kind of, I'm laying another foundation. Others will come by and build on it. The specific context is the, 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 the building is, the, is the, the message. It's teaching. But in a wider context, which I think is perfectly applicable, it's the lives we lead. The wood, hay, and stubble, the materials that are being used to build this building, mixed in with what? Gold, silver, precious gems. You light that whole thing on fire, what's left? What happens to the wood, hay, and stubble? It's gone. All that remains are those enduring materials. And he's saying that the gold, silver, and precious gems are the right things, the right doctrines, the right teachings, and the right living. We are building something. We are all building something. You say, oh, I'm just not going to participate. Yeah, you are. The way you are living your life, the way you are uh, managing your relationships, 
the way you are spending your money, the way you are making, the choices you make in terms of practically everything, especially in a, in a society that's plagued with moral decay, are all adding something to this building. Wood, hay, and stubble, or gold, silver, and precious gems. And the picture, is this literally going to happen? No, I don't think so. But this is the picture. Uh, when we stand before Christ in judgment... The only thing that's going to remain are the things we did, the right things for the kingdom. The good news is, if you built your, if, if, if on this foundation of Christ, the building you built is wood, hay, and stubble, but you're still a Christian, you survive. But it'd be like somebody running out of a burning building. You've lost everything, but you escaped with your life. Paul says you'll be saved, but it'll be as, as through fire. Versus the person who has invested this life into the next one by building with gold, silver, uh, precious stones. That's a reward that will follow you into eternity. Does that make sense? I'm not, we're, we're not talking about money here. We're talking about, our, we're talking about money, but we're, but we're not talking about just money. We're talking about our lives. Our li- what are we doing with our life? With this precious gift of time that we have. So, to finish that thought, in verse 16 it says this, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, which, uh, which temple you are. Now, just for what it's worth, I believe what he's talking about in the context of this passage, when he says you, you being the temple, I think he's talking about the church. I could be wrong about this, but it's certainly possible that he's talking about uh, the collective you. Paul does talk about the individual believer's body being the temple of the Holy Spirit a little bit later in this same letter. Uh, We'll get to that in chapter 6 when Paul talks about your body, your individual body being the temple of the Holy Spirit. Uh, But he talks about it then. You know, it's funny. I'll give you a little preview. When When we see somebody smoking or drinking or doing something that's harmful, we say you shouldn't do that. That's an unhealthy habit and your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. Is that true? Yes, it is. But you know what Paul's talking about when he, when he makes the big case about the temple, uh, your body being the temple of the Holy Spirit? He's talking about sexual sin, specifically, all right? Does that sound exciting? Make sure you're back next week and bring your kids. We'll have all the children in here. Cancel Sunday school, no. All right, so the rest of chapter 3 and 4, he kind of reiterates the point he made earlier in this letter where he says, look, you've received everything. You have everything you need. God has supplied it through me, through Apollos, through Peter. Uh, and through each other, the gifts are there and, and you're, you're being edified. So number one, be humble uh, because you've received it. You didn't achieve these things yourself. Everything you need for life and ministry uh, is, has been given to you. So uh, remember, it's not of yourself, so be humble, but also be grateful. Be grateful. Actively thank God for everything he's poured into your life. And then... As I mentioned, he chastises them for not taking care, a better care of him and other ministers and uh, warns them to do better in the future. In chapter 4, beginning in 14, it says this, I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. For this reason, I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, and who will remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. Now some are puffed up as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you shortly, if the Lord wills. And And I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. 
For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? This is, uh, I really like this passage because he's, uh, talking, he's talking about this division that exists. We've, we've talked about one of the specific reasons there's been division, fighting over who got baptized by who, who, who outranks who in the kingdom. And there's all these, this petty little stuff. And he hasn't even gotten into the gross sin yet. He's simply saying, I'm, I'm really disappointed. You know, this delegation from Chloe comes over here and tells me there's all this infighting and competition. It really shouldn't be that way because everything you've gotten, you've gotten from Christ. And I know because I was with you for a year and a half how richly God blessed you in all this ministry. You've got everything you need to prosper as a church and to be a blessing to the community around you and to, and to continue spreading the, the gospel. And you're not doing it. You're immature. You're carnal. You're acting like, I love this phrase, mere men. I saw somebody back when I was a teenager had a shirt that I always wish I had one that said, I am not a mere man. And that really appealed to the kid in me who still loves superheroes, you know, walking around knowing there's something inside of you that makes you something more than simply human. And we all are with the Spirit of God in us. And Paul accuses them of, of acting like mere men. But now he says, And some of you are strutting your stuff, acting like you know you're not supposed to act, but you don't care because you think I'm not going to come there. Guess what? I'm coming there. I'm going to be in Corinth, God willing, and it's up to you. You can jerk the slack out and address these things so that when I come, we can just enjoy each other's fellowship. It'll be gentleness. It'll just be some good time in the Lord and fellowship with each other. Or I can come with a rod. And if you don't jerk the slack out of you, I'm going to jerk the slack out of you. I'm going to beat it out of you. I'm going to discipline you like a father disciplines his child. And he says, it's up to you. That's apostolic authority right there. In fact, it's pastoral authority. Got this belt here. No, I'm kidding. Then I'm I'm going to wrap up with just one example, and he'll develop this, and we'll continue next week. But I do want to read this last passage because at the, at the end of this chapter, of chapter 5, well, let me tell you what, what he did. Instead of reading this to you, in chapter 5, he talks about, this is what I really blows me away. He says, it's been reported to me that there is immorality in the church. Now, we look around today and we say, of course there's immorality in the church. We're just human. Of course, we're, there's going to be all sorts of sins. Paul is expressing disgust and shock at this. He said, you're the church of God. You've got the Holy Spirit. Why should there be immorality in your lives? He says, but not only that, it's immorality of such a kind that even the Gentiles wouldn't tolerate it. I have heard on good authority that there's somebody in your church who's having sex with his stepmother. He's like, this is something the pagans would find shocking. It's happening in your church. And the issue is, you're tolerating this. This is one of the the, the passages that will really throw the tolerance crowd for a loop. Just don't judge anybody. Just love them. Just love them into the kingdom. Do we love them into the kingdom? Absolutely. Do Do we stop them at the door and say, you can't come in there unless you're living this kind of life? Absolutely not. We have to understand the context. It's clearly, look, this is somebody who knows better. We can't. Man, we want, we want them all in here, right? We're fishing. God will clean them up. And we need to be patient with that. But somebody has heard the word and they refuse to accept correction. Then we've got to deal with this somehow. Look at what he says. 
uh, we'll pick this up in verse 9. He says, I wrote to you in my epistle, the epistle we don't have. We already have what we call 1 Corinthians, but he's talking about a previous letter. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the, with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or the extortioners or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. What's he talking about here? He tells them in a letter, hey, look, man, come across these extortioners, idolaters, sexually immoral people, don't associate with them. And so these people are like, what we're going to, well, they take this cloister uh, or monastery uh, mentality. Well, we're just going to kind of hunker down. We will only fellowship with one another. And Paul's like, that's not what I meant. You're living in this world. If you're going to avoid all immoral people, you might as well, you, you, you have to die. You have to get out of this world. That's not what I mean. And he says what he does mean. But now I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are on the outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from among yourselves the evil person. This is a nice little passage on church discipline. So I want the following people to stand up. Not kidding. Now, when he talks about not to even eat with such a person, there's, there's not a consensus on what he means. Many people who I respect believe that what he's actually talking about is communion. This is how we do church discipline. When we come to partake of the Lord's table, we refuse to serve it to the person who is in, who is obstinate about remaining in their sin. And in this, he's talking about sexual sin here, but he's, he's also very careful to say, I'm not just picking on this sin. I'm talking about it because we all know who I'm talking about. But it also goes for the idolater, the extortioner, the drunkard, etc. He says, this, this is my advice to you. Now, you're out there in the world, absolutely. You're going to rub shoulders with them, and you should. Talk to them. Live your life in front of them so that they'll follow you to church one day. But in the church, you've got to judge it. Judge it. We don't judge it by beating them. We judge it by withholding fellowship in, or the Lord's table. I actually think, I kind of fall into the camp of, uh, he's not just talking about communion. And I probably fall into that camp because, you know, we do communion once a month. Uh, we, we maybe don't elevate it to the, 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 the way others do, or maybe like we should. Although I think we are, we are getting better at that, aren't, aren't we? Well, I, mean, I, I really do more and more look forward to communion Sunday. Gathering with this local body of believers around the Lord's uh, body and blood. But I think he's talking about we are... And this really does speak to our, our society today. Now, Corinth, Corinth was a decadent society. It was a sex-obsessed uh, society. In their temple to Venus, there were a thousand uh, temple prostitutes. And what we as believers would absolutely categorize as immoral sexual activity was part of their worship of this uh, pagan deity. And this was the culture that they brought into the Christian church. And Paul's saying, nah, you're different from that now. You've been transformed, and it's got to be different. And if anybody drags that stuff in, and they refuse to change, they refuse to be corrected, they refuse to be cleaned up in this area, stop fellowshipping with them. What do we call that today? We call it enabling. If somebody who is persistent in a sin, and, they, and, and we just can, if all we do, I'm not saying we curse them, 
But if all we do is pat him on the back, tell him no matter what, God loves you, where's the impetus to change? And sooner or later, what happens if you keep bad company? Corrupts good morals. All right? This is the praise and worship team. You can be coming up. This is going to sound like a weird verse to read as the praise and worship team comes up. He says in verse 3 of chapter 5, For I indeed, as absent in the body, but present in spirit, have already judged, as though I were present, him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, this is something that I think maybe has been overdone in the past. You know, or maybe I'll just, I'll just, I turn you over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh just because you disagree with somebody. But he is talking about a unified deal here. This is something that clearly wrong. You all clearly know it's wrong. And, and this is why I think he's not just talking about communion. Because when he talks about turning someone over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, I believe he's saying we're going to disfellowship this person. Not to see them go to hell, but so that Satan, through the world, can beat up on this person and hopefully bring them to repentance. I think the two scenarios that, that Paul is looking at is one, and by the way, did you know he tells us how this story turns out in Second uh, Corinthians? Do you remember this? He says, Here's, there's two possibilities, because this is a believer, remember. He's going to go out there, and he's going to follow a path that is going to lead him to death because it's the enemy's path and the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And he's saying in the workings of God, if he, if he refuses to come back into the fold, God is going to let the devil have his way with this guy that's going to result in his physical death. But even that will be a mercy because he will die before he has a chance to go so far down that path that he turns, that he turns from God, where he renounces Christ. And that's better, it's better than, better to die younger but still in Christ than live to be older and renounce Christ. Here's the other possibility. He gets out there, devil beats up on him, the world beats up on him, he's going to come to his senses and come back and repent. You know that's what happened. They followed Paul's advice, they disfellowshiped this guy, and he came back and repented. We'll see that, well, that's just, I'm, spoiler, but that's what, so we'll, we'll read about that in 2 Corinthians. This is good news. Stand up with me. I know it seems like a weird thing to end up on, but I want you to see that even in the uncomfortable passages that have to do with judging sin, discipline in the church, these are not things that are fun to read about. It's good because it gets our attention and reminds us that God is serious about that. He's serious not just about how much he loves you, but he's serious about how you live your life. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.